0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is David Lee. David is the CEO of Boston-based Servier Pharmaceuticals. It's the U.S. subsidiary of France-based Servier Group. Servier, for those unfamiliar, is something of a rare bird in the pharmaceutical world. It markets both branded drugs and generics. It is a truly global company with 21,000 employees in 148 countries, but it has only recently entered the world's biggest pharmaceutical market, the United States. There's more. It's governed by a nonprofit foundation, and as part of its mission as a nonprofit dedicated to improving health, it invests 25% of its annual revenue in R&D, quite a bit higher than the industry standard. Some of you may be scratching your heads. This is different. David explains he comes to this challenge as an industry veteran having been around the block as a consultant and a variety of business roles at pharma companies such as Novartis and Shire he was at Shire prior to its acquisition by Takeda he came over to Servier with some of the assets from Shire that were being divested as part of that acquisition and those assets provided something of a foundation for Servier's U.S. expansion which has included building out offices in Boston for both the commercial and and R&D departments. David oversees all of that. Now, before we dive in, the Long Run Podcast has been around since 2017. Listeners tell me consistently they absolutely love this show, but it's been operating almost all of 2020 without any sponsorship. I do understand there are a gazillion other podcasts to listen to and plenty of other places to spend advertising and marketing dollars. I like doing this show, but I have been floating it financially all year. As a small businessman, I eventually do need to see some advertising support to justify continuing with this audio production. So, if you love listening to this show, and your company would like to raise awareness by advertising in front of an absolutely first-rate biotech startup and investment audience, then ask me about advertising opportunities in 2021. Luke at TimbermanReport.com. Now, please join me and David Lee on The Long Run. David Lee, welcome to The Long Run.
1: Thank you, Luke. It's fantastic to be here.
0: So, David, just to get started, um, I thought I'd share with the listeners the anecdote from when we first met, which would have been, I think, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference from 2019. And as I recall, you were new in the job at Servier. And uh, I really didn't know much about the company at all, but um, within the first few minutes, uh, you started laying this on me about how Servier is kind of a different company. It's got this social uh, social mission combined with uh, the scientific. Uh, effort to help patients, uh, like putting those two things together, like you really had my attention there. So I think maybe for, for a lot of listeners who are not super familiar with Servier, can you tell us what, um, what is different about this company?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to. It is a, a different model from from most of the pharmaceutical companies that I've worked at, and I, that's why I find this mission so interesting. Um, and it was a big motivator for me to join. So, so it's set up as as being governed by a nonprofit foundation, and, and what that really means is that this this foundation. Um, ensures that, number one, that, that the, the company has a, a long-term focus. So it is it's very, very difficult and almost impossible to acquire um group. And it means that you can't have a strategic focus. And then what that also means is that you can focus on the patients, um, that you can really spend the time and resources to developing drugs that really impact patients' lives um, and, and that you can, when we commercialize these products, you really look at the long-term and, and the impact that you can have on, on patients. So, so, you know, it, even though it's governed by a foundation, you know, we, we, we are still a business and, and so we still operate like a business, but, but what really differentiates us is that long-term focus.
0: Okay, I want to come back to all this. There's a lot to chew on here. But uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, where are you originally from?
1: So I, I was born in Southern California, um, in a town called Downey, which is in you know, the border between LA and Orange County.
0: And uh, what did your mom and dad do there?
1: Yeah no, <laughs> I can already tell this is a very different interview. <laughs> um, it, my my dad's a dentist. He he has his own private practice. My my we 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 largely grew up um, right on the border between LA and Orange County. Like I said, my parents live in Orange County now. My dad's a dentist. He he, he has owned his own practice um, in a town called Artesia for for about 40 years now. Um, and my mom is a a RN. Um, so she, um, she, she's, you know, worked in hospitals, um, worked as a nurse. Um, um, more, more recently, she generally helps my, my father out at, at his business.
0: Okay. Do you have brothers and sisters?
1: I do. I'm, I'm the oldest of three. Um, and there's a big age gap to myself and my sister Phoebe. We're about six years apart, and then I have a brother Andrew, and we're, we're eight years apart.
0: Okay, so now you say Orange County. Um, can, can you describe the scene for me a little bit? I mean, I think most people think of it as kind of a suburban uh, kind of area.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a very large suburban area. Um, you know, the big cities there: Anaheim, and that the people might have heard of, right? Anaheim, Irvine. Um, Newport Beach is, is in Orange County, um, as definitely a, a very distinct political identity from, from Los Angeles. Um, and so it, it it largely is that whole area between San Diego and, and, um, and L.A., um, culturally very, very beach centric. Um, you know, we I grew up about a 15 minute drive to the beach, Um and a lot of a lot of growing up there meant um, you know, going to the beach, um, hanging out there. I I recently was back in, in my parents' house, and I was going through some of my textbooks from from high school, and there's still sand between the pages of of, of my textbooks. So that, that kind of gives you a sense of what we spend a lot of time doing.
0: This is where teenagers go to to hang out, get uh, get away from mom and dad.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Okay, so um, what kind of student were you? Um, <laughs> honestly, I
1: I was a fairly driven student. Um, I, I went to public school in in, in the, the city called Cerritos. Um, I went to, uh, my high school was Whitney High School. Um, it was the number one ranked public high school in, in the state of California, and um, One of those schools where you have to you have to test into um, generally high, high competition. Um, And so I I would say, you know, I I can get more into it. You know, I I had a childhood that really led me to to wanting to to achieve. Um, So I
0: I I studied pretty hard. I I, um, wait, what was it that made you want to achieve? Where do you think that drive came from?
1: you know honestly I, I, it's it's a it's a combination of things and I actually dovetail well to to how i ended up in in eventually in pharmaceuticals um uh, but but I, I think there was there is a few things that happened um early adolescence that, that really drove me um one of the biggest by far the biggest was with my my mother um getting advanced um, stage breast cancer um, and so she um you know, she it, the the initial prognosis was not so good. Um, it was tough for me as uh, you know, I, I was 14 when she was diagnosed, and it was extremely tough for me. It it, it gave me a firm sense that you know life was short, um, and that we really needed to make the most out of it. Um, the, the good news is she she's still alive. She's done fine. You know, she, she but at that point, you know, going through the chemotherapy, going into you know, going into radiation therapy. Um, you know, being there, I, I got—I ended up getting my driver's license um, the day I turned 16, so I could take her to her appointments at City of Hope. Um, you know that, that really, cha- when you're a teenager, it really changes the way you view the world and, and the way you kind of approach life. Um, and so, you know, I, I just remember when, when she decided to do a, a, to get a, a mastectomy. You know those types of choices and what it means for a patient and what it means for the family just, it, it was in it, it, it just made me really realize how precious that, of, that life was and how much I wanted to get done with, with <laughs> within my own lifetime
0: so this helped focus you and and drive you in your studies What kind of subjects were you most drawn to you know in those high school years
1: yeah honestly um Probably math and science, because they were easy, and I, I'm fairly rational, um, and so I I like it when there are clear answers, um, and, and this kind of carried on through the remainder of my studies, but it's, uh, you know, the philosophies, the, the more humanities were, were tougher for me when there was no clear answer.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, and you're in this competitive um, public school environment, uh, but it sounds like you're you know, doing pretty well in the math and sciences. Uh, you end up going off to harvard uh, so uh, did, were you like head of your class or how, how did that happen
1: yeah yeah no I, I think it goes back to me wanting to make an impact um so so generally i wanted to do whatever i could so i graduated back to valedictorian for my high school um, but i also did every single extracurricular i could i could potentially do <laughs> and and, and it, it does go back to I just had this deep desire to 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 do something, and and honestly, it was a matter of control. I, I had no control in my family life. I had no control over how my my mother was doing. I had no control over you know my dad was you know had to had to stop his business for a few months. Uh, there was no control at home, and so I, I found the control in, in in everything else I did.
0: Wait, why did he have to stop his business for a while?
1: So, so, it's when when my mom couldn't take care of us, um, he he decided to, and that's one of the positives of owning your own business is that you know you can take a few months off. So he decided that you know without anyone at home, you know he could come home and and, and be there for us, um, you know do the pickups. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, and as you say that your siblings were younger, yeah. Um, I mean, maybe you would have been a little more independent, I suppose, having your driver's license and that being very important in Southern California.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it was huge.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, so you, you, you do well in school. You go off to Harvard, and what did you decide to study there?
1: I did biochemistry, um, which, uh, as I said earlier, was was one of those areas where I thought you could you, you could figure out the right answers. <laughs> I later learned there were there were more questions than there are ever answers, as you know well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, now you get your bachelor's there. Uh, then did, did you go to business school right after that, or what came next? I went to med school.
1: I went to Harvard Medical School, um, and I um, and that was interesting. So so I I did well undergrad. Um, with magna cum laude um, in biochemistry. It was an easy path to go to med school. Um, med school, once again, kind of kept me in the sciences. It, it at that point, I, I thought very much, you know, especially if I wanted to make a difference in healthcare for people like my mother, medicine was the way to go. Um, I, to be honest, uh, medicine was. Very interesting, but it was also not what I expected it to be, um, especially once you get into the clerkships. Um, and that's when you really notice that you, you deal with, you start seeing the politics of the hospital. You start realizing some of the limitations, the impact that you make on on patients' lives. Um, and then you, you deal with a lot of the, the, the paperwork and the bureaucracy that the hospitals came with. Um, and that's when I went back to, you know, what I thought was most interesting about about making a difference was was impacting people. Um and so at that point after I I finished med school, I went back for my MBA.
0: Okay. And what were you thinking that you would do with the MBA?
1: Um honestly I, I didn't know. I, I just knew I I would love for to have a little bit more control to be able to <laughs> potentially run my own business or, or, or embark on, on some sort of career where where it was more of um, a, a bigger type of impact. But honestly, when I started my MBA, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do.
0: Well, that that is in keeping with the autonomy that, you know, your, your dad would have had as a small business owner, as a dentist. Um not, not not, pushing as much paperwork as they do at, at Harvard Medical School. <laughs> um, You're
1: absolutely right. I, I saw my dad and, and the fact that he could focus on his patients and focus on his business. Um, that, that's kind of what I wanted versus, you know, being a cog in a massive hospital in, in Boston.
0: Okay. So where'd you get your first
1: job? So... <laughs> First, first job would go back to high school. Um, I had a st- stint, um, at a very short stint working at a, one, of the, one of those big um, Orange County um, companies, Disney. <laughs> so, so Disneyland was, was where I had my first job, but I, I, I wasn't there very long and, and <laughs> it, didn't, <laughs> it didn't give me any big takeaways on, on life. Well, what did you do there? i uh, i i I sold um cookies <laughs> it was, i I guess I learned about customer service. I learned about you know the importance of of, of dealing with customers and, and people.
0: Yeah, well, we can actually learn a lot about people from their first jobs, actually, but I, that wasn't really what I was meaning to get to. I, I was thinking more about like you know after you've sort of like grown up now you, you've got your medical degree and your business degree uh then what? Professionally,
1: so so my first um, initial jobs after business school were in in management consulting, and all on the pharmaceutical side. Um, So so one one of the first ones I I worked at was was the Franco Group, um, which now is is has been absorbed by the Huron Group. Um, I was a management consultant there, Um, largely working on all sorts of. Pharmaceutical projects, mainly due diligence, M um, and A type work, um, but we also did things in, on the HR side, including organizations and then, you know, product prioritization, those types of uh, large corporate strategic um, work.
0: Uh huh. And how long did you do the consulting?
1: So I was there for at, at that particular firm for two years.
0: Uh uh-huh. But then there was another.
1: So 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 I before that, um, but a much shorter term.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, I mean, did you get sort of the classic experience from management consulting, uh, you know, a broad array of different clients and different issues? You're learning a lot about how the industry really works, uh, but not necessarily, you know, uh, in charge of owning or implementing the solutions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it goes back to the how much autonomy and how much control you have and what type of impact you you make I enjoy the work but I, I do think the amount of um, and, and the breadth right um, you mentioned the different types of companies I worked with a lot a lot of large pharmaceutical companies um but but you know you, you don't really own the end results right you, you just give the recommendations to to you know exCO ECs
0: okay so when did you decide to make the move? Into industry full time, in an operating role.
1: Yeah, so so not that long, so two thousand and twelve. Um, so was when I fully moved over to um, to industry. Um, my first job was at Novartis. Um, I had known some of the. F- I worked with some of the people there um, what, as a as a consultant. So I, I had connections. Um, they were the ones that really brought me into the company um, and I had a great time um, coming into pharma.
0: And so what did you get to work on there at Novartis?
1: Yeah, so it's so a lot of different things. Um, I, I know you, you've talked to quite a few people that have worked at Novartis. Um, one of the great things is that the possibilities are endless um, and they're they generally, at that time, very willing to take a risk on people and, and put them into, to, into interesting roles. Um, so, so a big chunk of my time was actually in the medical countermeasure space. Um, I was the program lead for a few of our programs, which so is relevant now given the pandemic. Um, but for example, I oversaw all the all the trials for H7N9. So, so and, and I also oversaw the H5N1 um, trial. So, a lot of these kind of potential so pandemic um, strains um, that were circulating at that point. But in our portfolio, we also have products for anthrax, um, botulisms,
0: and some, some novel um, delivery devices. Were, were those antiviral medicines or vaccines? So, so
1: for, for something like age seven and nine, they were vaccines. Um, it, was, it was vaccine development, but similar to what we're seeing for, for COVID-19, it was, um, it was very rapid and fast <laughs> development processes.
0: Now with Novartis, were you uh, at the mothership in Switzerland or somewhere else? So, so I, I spent time at a few different locations.
1: Um, I moved around quite a lot. Um, so, so the vac- in that vaccine time, I was based um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, later, I, I had a commercial step that I spent um, time in, in New Jersey in the East Hanover offices. And I also spent some time in Basel in Switzerland.
0: Okay, so you're getting kind of uh, making the rounds. That's part of the, the the beauty of working at a big company is that it's it's international. You can get all these different kinds of experiences. How long were you there? So, um,
1: just there for for four years.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh huh, uh huh. And and then um, well, let's just ask about this because this was your first uh, pharmaceutical experience. Were, were there? Um, particular aspects of the business that uh, that appeal to you more than others. Like you started to, you know, imagine a a longer term career for yourself in pharma at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I loved it, um, and it was really because of, of what I was doing at that time. Um, you know, I, I think you know Voss, who is now the CEO of Novartis. So, you know, he was in, in he was he was in, in our business at that point, vaccines diagnostics. Uh, it was a small group of, of fairly young, especially young to industry um, folks. Um, a lot of ex-management consultants, um, and and they kind of just let us do whatever we wanted to do, and it was, it was great. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, you, you got a lot of exposure to to all sorts of parts of the business, and I, I fell in love with it. You know, they I had an opportunity to work on on. on getting one of our, our manufacturing sites um, licensed um, in, in Holly Springs, North Carolina. I worked across clinical development, regulatory. Um, you know, I got into the commercial side. So, so almost anything you really wanted to get into, you could. Um, th- at that point in, in what we were doing, there was really no one that, that said no, which I, I loved. Um, you know, if you, if you believe you can make an impact for the company, you just went and did it
0: so there's there's that autonomy that you keep you keep coming back to um so um your what was your next stop was this shire
1: yeah so so it the next stop were were essentially kind of f- three companies all all rolled into one it, it, and and I know you, you know the how how fast this kind of moved but i, I I ended up um, joining Baxter um, with a lot of people that came from Novartis, um, a lot of folks that and we all went there to to set up Baxalto, um, so, so we already knew that, that we were preparing for the spin-off um, and so it's a lot of Novartis that, that came on board to, to prepare for that. Um, and I, I I was there working um, with Dave Meek on on creating a brand new oncology business. So once again, it was it was the ability to kind of do whatever we wanted to do, build a business from scratch. Um, so so Dave and I were, were working on this this new franchise for for Baxalta. So it went from Baxter to Baxalta, and then we got bought by Shire, as you know, within six months.
0: So. <laughs> Right, that was not a long-term arrangement. But then you 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 end up in at at Shire, um, and what was your job there?
1: Yeah, so at Shire I was the global head of rare diseases, which um, which meant kind of three different franchises. Um, It was the the genetic diseases, which generally are lysosomal storage diseases. we had a very and now Takeda is a very exciting um, franchise and Hereditary and Angodema, um, including at that time, you know, we acquired um DIAX and, and lawn Dally maps so of preparing for that launch and then oncology business. So those are those kind of the three areas that I you know, was overseeing.
0: Now were you what was your actual role? Were you like a, a general manager type or or something higher by then.
1: I, I was a global franchise head for, for these these franchises. Um, so so for, for Shire, that meant um, kind of all the global strategies, um, you know, country coordinations, the the even a lot of the, the pipeline management, um, you know, including some of the BD work, um, you know, in hand, developing, furthering the the pipeline. Um, But but you were essentially the the head and the face of, of those particular businesses.
0: If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and the writing of other expert contributors, and you will ultimately get ahead of the curve in this business. It's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. You can also try it out for $55 for three months or just $20 for the first month. Discounts are available for groups. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get your subscription today. And the Long Run Podcast has been around since 2017. Listeners tell me they love it, but it's been operating almost all of 2020 without any sponsorship. I do need to see some advertising support for this show to continue. If you love listening to this show, and your company would like to raise awareness with an absolute first-rate biotech startup and investment audience, then ask me about advertising opportunities in 2021. Luke at timbermanreport.com. So you're getting a pretty well-rounded view uh, at, at that level of the, the whole enterprise. Um, but then Shire gets uh, acquired by Takeda. Uh, that would have been twenty twenty eighteen. Uh, so, or I guess it was announced then, and it was closed a little later. But um, what what were you thinking uh, was going to be your your next move?
1: Yeah. So, so this is where the story kind of gets interesting. So I, I mentioned that I was I was the glo- also the global head of oncology of, of that business at, at Shire. So even before the Takeda deal, um, I, we were looking at what to do with oncology business. It was at that time deemed non-core to what we were doing. Um, you know, we were we really bo- saw our future as as the leaders in rare diseases, um, and that's the area that we really want to own. So oncology, and, and you know, when I did my assessment. It, it requires a, a huge amount of dedication, amount, a, a, a strong um, amount of resources, um, efforts, um, and, and, and expertise to, to succeed. And so, so we decided it was non-core and, and it became up to me to really find a home for the, the Shire Oncology business. And so we were doing that while, well, and, and later on, later with this, um Takeda became more and more on the scene, and so it all it all just kind of came together where I was able to find a a, a home for the divestment of the Shire Oncology um, business um, with with Servier, and then soon after you know soon after that Takeda happened.
0: Okay, so uh, what was the oncology business composed of at that time? Like you had a few marketed products and some others in the pipeline. Exactly.
1: Yep, yep. It was generally, a, and, and, and it still is, um, uh, more assets outside the U.S., um, a little bit more limited within the U.S. itself, um, and then some, some interesting um, pipeline products um, that were earlier on. Um, so generally um, the, the late stage, you know, phase three um, and commercial assets were, were in, in liquid tumors and in GI tumors
0: hmm hmm Okay, so you find a home for this uh portion of the this divestiture with Servier. Now what how did that come about?
1: <laughs> so so it was a it was a competitive process. Um you know we, we there are a few good areas that had that uh, that it could have gone to. Um, you know, what one of the things that really struck me with Servier, you know, it's and my exposure to it, you know, earlier on was more in the cardiovascular space um, and what it's it's known for. Um, but when when I started looking at at Servier when, when in our discussions, it was it's really interesting that when I started learning about the nonprofit structure that, that it has set up, um, I was impressed by its kind of ex-US presence, unlike most of the large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, I've been in. You know, Servier Group is in 150 countries, um, so a much more broader geographic footprint. It wasn't present in the U.S. at that point. It wasn't present in, in Japan, both of where we, both of countries where, where we are now in, um, especially due to this acquisition,
0: which is kind of wild, by the way. Because I mean, everybody you know thinks of the United States as the biggest market for pharmaceuticals. I mean, but here you have a company that's really concentrated in Europe. But it's nowhere in the U.S. And, and not really in Japan either.
1: Yeah, no, it, it was fascinating to me. And, and, and to be honest, the two biggest countries, even today, um, for, for survey group is China, number one and Russia, number two, which is very, very different from, as you know, from, from all the other companies. But, but what really struck me was their focus on oncology. So what they said to me is that oncology is our future. We're going to resource this we're, we're going to grow this and we're going to do what it takes. And we've done, and, and as you know, a lot of partnerships that they had already done um, in the oncology space were very exciting. Um, but but what they said was, you know, we're going to do more and we're going to really resource this.
0: Now, what you, what you were bringing were, I mean, a couple of uh, chemotherapy type drugs that were approved. Um, so there's some revenue there. And I suppose you could, you could pencil that out, you know, like an investment banker <laughs> here, here, here's what this thing will bring in and what the costs are and all that. And, and here's the pipeline. But by this point, Servier had already set up, uh, its partnerships with like selectus and allergene, uh, in, in cell and gene therapy. Is that correct? Yep.
1: Yep. So I had, a, I had a partnership with, with um, allergy and selectus, um, it also um, had some interesting. It had it has um, a great relationship with Novartis um, in the apoptosis space with BCL one, uh, MCL one, BCL two, um, and, and there's a, a few other um, partnerships that it already had ongoing. And it also had commercial um, partnerships. So it, it it had the rights to it has the rights to long surf, Um with, with Taiho XUS us um, and a few of these other um, you know, commercial partnerships.
0: So this is really interesting strategically. I mean, here you have a company that uh, has some interesting scientific work going on in oncology with some important partnerships, uh, but they don't have a U.S. commercial presence or or Japan, a couple big obvious markets, uh, and, and so the, you're thinking maybe, maybe like if we plug in what the the products that were here at Shire, uh, give them a little more footprint exposure into the U.S. that that could, you know, <laughs> deliver the, you know, the synergies that people talk about, like that you, you'd build relationships, you know, with the clinical investigators and all that to, to help advance their pipeline. And that, that one-on-one would add up to more than two.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's kind of what we hear other people talking about when they're. They're talking about creating synergies, right? You know, it was a really nice fit. You know, we would be able to give them, you know, commercial products in the U.S. Um, we would be giving them, and we've just launched Onivy for pan- metastatic pancreatic cancer in, in Japan. So, so giving them some products, um, you know, in, in their, their, the largest markets, frankly, for, for oncology, um, and then they would be able to bring, you know, some of the additional footprints in, in Europe and in Asia, um, and be able to commercialize these products even better. Um, especially since they, they, uh, they were already operating in, in, in colorectal cancer, um, and, and liquid tumors. And then even on the pipeline side, you know, at, at Shire, we had, um, a partnership with, with Symphogen, um. So monoclonal antibodies and then we had a part- we have a partnership with precision um, on, on the CAR T front. Um, so they had a CAR um, T, they, they were in SPI specifics um, and, and so it, it really was a nice compliment
0: okay, but now this sounds really interesting on paper, but of course you, you got to actually do it now. <laughs> uh, like, right. And this is a France based company, long history of operating in Europe, no operations in the U S like, so like somebody's got to do it. And like, did, was were, were you part of the package? It's like, you know, this is like, I, I know these products and like, I have to be, you know, me and my team are going to have to be the ones to come in here and, and make it work in the U S. So, They were
1: the ones that came to that conclusion. They were the ones that kind of looked at this portfolio and and asked the question, you know, how do we actually unlock value there? Um, You know, obviously I was in discussions um, from a, from a divestment perspective with, with the management, a survey group, but it was, it was there no discussion that became very clear. They, they saw a huge um, need to, to have the expertise come with this, this deal. Um, and, and so the conversations quickly turned to being very operational and, and how do we, you know, how, how do we kind of bring this product to this business, um, to the U.S.? Um, how do we build a, a brand new U.S. Um, you know, legal entity and how do we expand these products globally?
0: Okay, so they approached you and what was your initial reaction? Did you think what were some of the questions i guess that you had
1: (laughs) i had a lot of questions i can tell so so you know we we take a step back i was running rare diseases at shire it was obviously a very exciting growing portfolio i was based in zug um in in switzerland um and i distinctly remember this 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 meeting we uh we decided to meet in Zurich, mainly because it was more central um and I, I Olivia Leroux is the president of the Survey Group. Um, him and I, um, we ended up arranging a, a very, very confidential meeting um, in, a, in a hotel um, by the airport in, in Zurich. There, um, and it was a it was a surprisingly candid meeting where we sat down and we, we talked about. You know, I, I had a lot of questions about where they where they wanted to take these products. You know, where they wanted to go in oncology. What what was their vision for for Servier in the future? You know, how do they really expect them to to bring about the, the value of, of the Shire portfolio? And, and that's you know, it was really this heart heart to heart that gave me such confidence in, in in what Servier was trying to build um, and where they needed to go and and their and their ability to know what they what they needed to make this successful, and and like I said, one of the biggest part that he was clear about was the people, right? You needed the people with with oncology expertise to make this work.
0: So was he essentially recruiting you here, Olivier, being your your boss? Uh, like, hey, I I I need you to do this and set this up in the United States, where you know you already had experience and contacts.
1: Yeah, yeah essentially it it was it was definitely a, a it was a not an overt recruitment but it was a, very much you know you know help us um make this work and, and this could be really really exciting um and for me you know my thinking is if you look at all of pharmaceutical companies there's i can't really think of one that doesn't have a, a large u s presence um and, and so the opportunity to kind of build something from scratch in the U.S., to make all the decisions, pick all the people, um, kind of goes back to to, to what tried, what's driven my whole career, right? That ability to build was, was hugely attractive to me.
0: Did he uh, talk to you much about like the unusual structure and the mission of the place? Because, I mean, for those are not familiar, I mean, one thing I remember you telling me in the first meeting was that um, Servier is governed by a nonprofit foundation in France and that it um, part of, I believe this is written into your bylaws, correct me if I'm wrong, that you, you invest 25% of the revenue of your products into R&D which is much higher than industry average so that that's like walking the talk and saying this is a this is a it is an enterprise that exists to you know makes you know, to be financially sustainable but to plow its, its proceeds back into science that helps patients
1: absolutely no it, it is really you know, walking the, the talk and i you're absolutely right. So 25% of, of turnover goes into R&D, uh, 50% of that goes oncology. And and, and what, what you'll see is that it's going to continue to grow as we further um, invest in the oncology space. But you know, that I, I was very surprised. I didn't really fully even realize this until day one, when I started to talk to people after the transition that, you know, it, R&D a survey group is the largest function um, and that, that as you know that's not the case for almost any other or any other pharmaceutical company
0: but there's um, that's kind of one manifestation of this broader uh, i guess philosophy of how to operate isn't it that um, that it's kind of like stakeholder capitalism you hear people talk about that in the US now um where the company just has a responsibility to uh, patients, to employees, to partners, to the communities in which it operates, as well as uh, the, the shareholders, to, to you know, to make sure that they don't lose money. Uh, it's it's all of those things. It's
1: all of those um, the the patients, but I, I'm glad you also mentioned employees, right? I, I, we have a huge emphasis on employees and and. And, and, you know, getting the right people on the bus, but then making sure that that, that we, we retain them, that, that they get something out of, of their experience, that they truly are making a difference, and that we, we empower them, uh, that we allow them the freedom to do what they do best.
0: How do you do that as a manager? Uh, or or are you – do you have a little more freedom to do it in this kind of structure? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I think we, we have – Different metrics um, that, that we kind of hold ourselves by, you know, here at, at Survey Pharmaceuticals, so this U.S. business, we, we actually do a, a lot of surveys of our employees. We we try to have a very very frequent pulse check on, on how people are are, are feeling, how they what they're thinking, um, their experience, um, and, and we check up on our culture a lot. But, but, you know, it's, it's, it's emphasizing two areas, right? So empowering the people, you know, making sure they, they feel that they, they are able to make that difference. And then, um, but still being accountable, right? So, so making sure that people, people feel accountable for, for what they, they need to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have goals, and you don't want it to become like a, a cushy nonprofit, right? <laughs> you, you can't you can't achieve your goals without you know um, some accountability.
1: Well, I, I can tell you, we 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 kind of beaten the deal model um, every every year since the transition in the, our first two years. So I, I think we're, we're doing well. We're, we're really delivering, um, but but I, I think for the for for the employees, it, it's you know how how can they best make a difference? And then we don't, you know, we we're extremely open. Um, even before any of this pandemic, um, you know, we, we really believe that employees should have the flexibility to make, you know, their, their own life decisions. Um, and, and it's not work-life balances, work-life integration, right? It is, um, as long as you're accountable to the work that you need to perform, it's not up to us to decide, you know, when you, when you need to take vacation, uh, when, when you don't. And and follow any of that, right? Um, you know, honestly, these are professionals. Um, you know, many of many of them have families and kids and other obligations. Um, you know, it's up to them to figure out how all this works together. Um, if they have an appointment, if they need to drop off their kids, if they need to go in for a physical, it's really for them to manage on, on their own.
0: So you don't sound like a micromanager breathing down people's necks. No. <laughs> <laughs> How many people do you have there in the Boston facility, which is where you're based, right? Yeah,
1: so we're based in the seaport, uh, which is this, this kind of fairly new neighborhood in, in Boston. Um, so it's so a little away from where everyone else is in Kendall Square.
0: But it's growing. I, I've been there.
1: <laughs> it, it, the seaport is is growing. we Vertex was one of the few first companies there. Um, Foundation Medicine is building a... A nice big building next to ours. Alexion has their, their global headquarters next to ours. Um, there, there's really getting to be critical mass um, present. We're, we're currently at 127 people.
0: And um, since you brought up the pandemic, how, um, how have you been operating? Would you say you've tried something you know, different that, or maybe that you've been thinking about before in terms of how to, how to manage your teams?
1: I I would be very honest. I, I think it has been a challenge. I, I I don't think this this pandemic has been easy for for any of us. Um, and, and like other companies, you know, we, we've seen some some slight delays in our clinical trials. We we've. You know switching to remote working has has, has its own set of um issues largely around um, sometimes longer work days and back to back meetings and and lack of being able to truly connect to you to your colleagues um but but I am proud of what what we were able to do so so we at survey pharmaceuticals um, we have a pandemic risk committee that, that meets every single day every morning um and assesses how how not just are, you know, the state of Massachusetts is doing, but how many of the states, since we have field reps and MSLs and and, and almost all of them, you know, how how all all the states are, are generally doing. You know, what are the policies? They look at the CDC, they look at the WHO. Um, it was that body that that recommended to me that we make a call to send all of our employees home before the state of Massachusetts. Um, you know made that decoration and I think it was absolutely the right move to do. You know, we transitioned quickly to working from home. Um our IT um, team set everyone up. Um we we sent everyone anything they needed uh, from a technical standpoint. External monitors, keyboards, whatever you need to 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 be able to 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 shift to being at home. Um and it was a good thing we did. You know, at that point we we had no idea how long this would last, but you know, by doing that quickly, um, we've been able to 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 function and to really not skip any 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 real beat
0: here. I tell you, I invested fifteen dollars in an Ethernet cable. The best investment I made this year. <laughs> <laughs> Stable internet.
1: So key, so key.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, but back to like um, your your employees and their engagement. Um, your um, this flows from your mission, right? I mean, I would imagine you attract a certain kind of person that 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 is drawn to this uh, this idea, uh, and um, you know. And, and when I looked at your business, uh, I know you just put together a new website. You have. Um, uh, 49 marketed products, is that right? Around the world, those are those are patented medicines around the world. But then there's then there's generics too. Yep, yep, exactly. And so there's there's a division for each of these things, and you know responsibilities that come with with all of them, right? I mean, you got to be able to manufacture them consistently and purely, and 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 distribute them. Uh, kind of the fundamentals of the business, um, but Servier continues to, you know, to do generics. Um, why? Why is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it goes back to the commitment to to patience. Um, you know, uh, we we have kind of two generics businesses. Um, they fall under the the these kind of other legal entities. One's called BioGorin and one's called Aggies. Um One's based in France and one's based in um, Eastern Europe. Um, so, so a lot of that is that, that strong commitment to to patients. Um, so, if you add up all the generics and the patent products, um, we ch- survey group treats about a hundred million patients, um, and, and that. That's an important number for us, um, and a lot of it is due to the fact that we, we do manufacture all these generic products, um, but it means that we can really make a difference in, in, in just you know these chronic diseases and, and drugs that, that patients take day
0: in and day out. Part of the reason I bring this up, David, you, you may not have heard this. I did a podcast recently with Peter Kolchinski of RA Capital, and he talks a lot about the biotech social contract. And part of that, um, well, he has some criticisms of like patients being paying too much money out of pocket for medicines and that limiting access. But also, um, uh, some pharmaceutical companies that um, you know are, are doing you know, kind of patent tricks to extend the life the life cycles of their um, big cash cow products. Uh, And that that really has been bad for the industry and that what you need is what he calls contractual genericization, so like a system that you know more effectively rewards the innovator for developing that patented medicine in the first place, but then that expires, right, as, as intended under Hatch Waxman and everything else, um, so that you know you have an incentive to continue to innovate, but then we as a society reap the benefits with the dividends in those uh, those generic medicines, and um, but you know somebody needs to make those and and uh, and and make a you know a, a narrow or a profit margin, but still a profit margin nonetheless. Um, and for you guys, like when you start with that North Star of serving the patients, I mean, there, there's room for both making patented medicines and generic medicines. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: I, I would probably just ex- expand on, on his concept a little bit, which is, you know, it, it's also about the, the global patient footprint, um, which, which I think differentiates um, what I see here at Servier from, from other companies. Being in 150 countries makes you start realizing you know, the amount of patients that are really still un- unserved um, by 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 medications that are that we sometimes think are widely available. Um, an example is we're in the acute lymphoblastic leukemia space, um, and we have we 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 deliver these these drugs not just in the U.S. but across the world and. And what you start seeing is that the incidence of, of, of ALL seems to go down in, in developing countries. You know, that, that is obviously not true. It, it just means that there's a huge amount of underdiagnosis and misdiagnosis, right? You know, assumption is most of these these children often pass away before, um, before they're even diagnosed correctly. Um, and, and so what you start realizing is that when, when you're in this many countries, you know the, the impact that you can have on, on much greater amounts of patients um, it, it is is there, but but there's also a, a need to 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 service those patients. So it's, it's like the generic products often um, in these developing countries to, to to get these drugs to them. You know the, the margins are are very low or sometimes not even there, um, and so it is an even broader you know social contract that. That's that's and being present in all these markets, um, whether whether you really have a margin there or not, it becomes very unique, right? So so that patient pool becomes truly global, and and you you and and sometimes in markets, um, you do need to make sure that you have those margins so that you can get to those patients in in areas that, that that you obviously cannot.
0: How does this work for your strategy when you think about cell therapies? You know, we mentioned um, the partnerships that you have, Allergy and Selectus. Uh, you know, going after these novel targets, you know, LAG3, TIM3. I mean, we could talk about the science, but, um, you know, that's that's a long development horizon, a lot of money, risk involved. Um, these are going to be expensive therapies, right? Uh, how, how are you going to be able to are, – are you guys thinking all ahead about how to provide broader than – usual access to these medicines? Yeah, yeah, we are thinking about that. Um, a few months ago we acquired
1: Symfogen, um, which, which was a partner of ours under Shire, but under Servier, especially to, to kind of beef up our, our, our checkpoint inhibitors, we, we decided to acquire Symfogen. Um, and, and those are exactly questions that we're talking about right now. Um, you know, one of the targets is the PD-1. Obviously, there are quite a few PD-1s out there already, and it will require us um, a decent amount of investment to continue on, on development for, for certain of these targets that are already crowded. But the question really becomes, you know, can you can you use that to better serve some of these patients that are not being served um, in, in certain markets, um, especially ones that, that we, we already have a big presence in?
0: So having worked in... Other organizations with, you know, more traditional, let's say, um, operating structures, you know, a mandate to serve the shareholders um, first and foremost. Um, is this is this a, a better way to, to run a pharmaceutical company or, or, or in some ways or, you know, does it have some drawbacks in others?
1: I, I, I don't think it's a better way. I think there, there are different ways. Um, and it's it's really, you know, we, we often talk. I've had a lot of conversations recently about, you know, what what, what does success look like, and, and why? And often it becomes, you know, success is just different for every single individual, and, and what you really care about. Um, it's just a different model. It, it, um, I I think this the way we run things. I, I think you have a much more long term focus where. For oncology, it means that you have commitment to long-term development, that, that you can bring value to, to patients in the longer term. Um, you, you, have, um, you think about the strategy as not you know, near-term you know, value creation, but more, more sustainable um, value. Um, but but so so I, I do think that then impacts patients' lives directly. But it also means that we have a bigger focus on our employees, and and what our what we owe our employees is also greater than other other um, companies. On the other hand, you know we we don't have shareholders. That that also means you know the, the what I'm used to you know quarterly earnings are not are are not what drives everything. Um, it is something we still take very seriously, but. It's not gonna. It's not the the primary focus for us, and and so you know what you mentioned potential downsides. You know sometimes that means that you're you're a little bit more. You may not be as efficient as some of the other companies. You might be a little bit more okay with 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 especially that focus on employees or or, or patients. You know costing something, um, especially in the near term, and and being less efficient. with capital, um, but but that, that 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 might be okay. It's, it's just different different goals and different views.
0: Well, I, I think this is a good conversation to have. I'm I'm guessing you probably have with a number of colleagues from around the Boston community that work in different types of organizational structures. You know, but given the backdrop in, in our society where the pharmaceutical com- and biotech companies are seen um, in a very harsh negative light. Um, even while you know doing this Herculean work on the COVID response, um, you know something's you know gone wrong in in that balance, and, and and needs to happen to rebuild trust. and And I just wonder if there's some you know interesting cross fertilization of of ideas from you know organization like yours and and, and others uh, in the community.
1: I think we need more dialogue. Um, it is, you know, I, I have a lot of personal discussions with many people that, uh, that run biotech companies, and it's. Um, but but I think it's also been harder with this pandemic and having those those clear dialogues and and, and really looking at, you know, will, are all of our what what we consider success um, aligned correctly.
0: David, last thing I just want to ask you is kind of a, a, out of left field. You know, what, what's a good book that you've read lately, and what do you like about it?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I actually, um, I have my my phone um, perched perched on top of a stack of books, um, and one of the one on top. Um, there's a few good books here. Um, there's also ones on philosophy. Um, <laughs> but but there's one called unleashed um this is by francis fry um she was one of my professors um while i was at hbs during my mba and it's basically the i'm halfway through it it's the you know the subtitle is the unapologetic leaders guide to empowering everyone around you and and i just think it's it's a I have a lot of questions, especially during this pandemic, about how do you get the most out of people, how do you lead well. Um, how do you really make you know, I talked about making a legacy, right? How do you make an impact, especially after you're gone? And and what what, what Dr. Fry is trying to explain here is is how do you how do you lead in a way that 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 really creates long lasting value and makes a difference in, in other people's lives. So so I I I'll finish it. I'm sure it'll be fantastic, but, but I, I, I already have a lot of great takeaways
0: here. You know, this reminds me a little bit of, uh, Clay Christensen's little book, uh, about how will you measure your life? Which, which I think, you know, was aimed at an HBS kind of crowd and, and it wasn't all just about, you know, the titles you got and the money that you made and, uh, it encourages students to think along these lines. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 many of us miss him a lot.
0: David Lee, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run.
1: Thank you so much, Luke. I, I really had a great time. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.